Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Valo update. So, Lindsay, we have a lot more followers. Yeah, we do. We have a few more, which is very exciting. And how we want to start our 2022. This is the first episode we're recording in this year. Exactly. Yeah. So welcome to all the new people. Thanks for coming back to those that have listened in 2020 and 2021. Because we haven't covered Valo in a while, and because we have so many new listeners, we thought that we'd have a quick introduction on the case and then review the things that have come up in the last couple months that we found interesting. Yeah, there's a ton that has happened. We're going to kind of gloss over some things because a lot of times we talk about a lot of filings. We're not going to talk about that many. There's been many details. And rather than having a 17-hour episode, we picked what we thought was the most pertinent. And what you were really going to need to understand is the case continues. Yeah, and it's going to continue for a while. We don't really have an end in sight completely. Uh, never. No. So with that, let's get into our introduction of the Lori Vallow Daybell case. Like I said, we've been covering this case for quite a while, but just to go over the events real quick. In the fall of 2019, Larry and Kay Woodcock grew increasingly concerned when they were unable to get in contact with their grandson. His name was JJ. So JJ was in the custody of his adopted mother, and her name is Lori Vallow. Earlier that same year, Lori's husband and JJ's adopted father, who was also Kay's brother, his name's Charles Vallow, was killed by Alex Cox. Alex Cox is Lori Vallow's brother. And also, just in case your head's already spinning with names... We do have on our website a list of everyone involved in the case from local law enforcement to family members. So that's definitely a resource you can take a look at. It's at truecreeps.com. And if you click ongoing cases, it'll be under Valo. Yeah. And even for the people that have been following this for a while, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of names. And some people even have the same name. So I get it. Yeah. So originally, this was deemed self-defense when Alex killed Charles. But it was later reclassified as a homicide. And in addition to that, charges would be filed for conspiracy to commit murder. After months of not being able to get in contact with JJ, Kay and Larry were able to get the Rexburg police, which they're located in Idaho, to do a welfare check. But they were unable to locate the children. When we say children, we also mean Tylee, Ryan, who is Lori Vallow's biological daughter from a previous marriage. Right. And so two children under the age of 18 who are then missing. During this time, the wife of Chad Daybell unexpectedly dies. Weeks later, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell go to Hawaii and they get married. Very quick turnaround. And it was very interesting because Chad and Tammy, that was his wife's name, were together for a while. And then also on the other side of it, Lori and Charles were also together for a while. Yeah. So both their spouses all of a sudden dying and then them getting married was kind of a big red flag that everyone had. In December of 2019, Tammy's body is exhumed. The very next day, Alex Cox unexpectedly dies in Arizona. While in Hawaii, Lori is ordered to produce JJ and Tylee early in 2020. Of course, Lori does not produce the children and then is arrested for obstruction charges. In June of 2020, Chad Daybell's property is searched and the remains of Tylee and JJ are found. Tylee had been mutilated and burned. JJ had been wrapped in duct tape and in trash bags. They were both found on the property, but in different areas of the property. Chad was then arrested and both Chad and Lori were charged with destruction of evidence. In 2021, Tammy's autopsy is completed. Then Lori and Chad are charged with conspiracy to commit first degree murder Later in 2021, Lori is charged with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder in relation to Charles's death. So with that, we're going to continue the coverage. So today we're going to start with the filings that have come out since the last time we covered this, which was like in mid-fall of 2021. And so there's two separate cases at the moment that right now we're not sure whether they're going to be a singular trial or whether they're going to be severed that hasn't been decided. So we're going to start with the filings from Chad's case. 
like we mentioned at the top of the episode, we're not going to get into every granular detail of every single thing that's happened since the midfall. One of the more interesting filings that came out was the state filed a motion informing the defense that they had more evidence that they might be including in the trial. And the new evidence is a letter from Barry Cox, which is Lori's father. We haven't seen this yet, so I'm interested to see what exactly this is. A consulting report from Microvision Northwest Forensic Consulting. Not quite sure what it is, but intrigued nonetheless. The Utah Office of the Medical Examiner's Report with Additional Data. This sounds like it's probably from Tammy's autopsy. Yeah, that's my guess. And then the one that kind of like perked our ears up the most was an incident report from the Rexburg Police Department until November 15th of 2021. And it gives a specific case number, but... We can't search it and find like what that specific incident is. So I'm intrigued to know what is this incident report that is going to have new information as of just a few months ago. Right. So additionally, in our last update with Valo, we talked about a very interesting interaction that Lori had with an LDS attorney after being urged to contact them from her mental health professional. Mark Means has what I can only describe as professional hissy fit after in his filings. (laughs) That's generous. It is generous. And you'll find out why it seems like the court agrees with this assessment. But anywho, so Pryor, who is Chad Daybell's attorney, filed a motion for discovery, quote, concerning events that were revealed in Laurie Vallow's motion hearing because they wanted the information that the third party attorney had heard. And the state filed a response and objection to Chad's motion and basically saying, we are not responsible to get information that we don't have. And because we didn't have this conversation with Lori, we don't know what she told them. What a silly thing to think you could get. Very strange. The briefest of recaps. Means filed a motion relating to an incident that had happened as Lori is at a mental health facility because she's been deemed incompetent. Her mental health care provider assigned her homework that she thought was mandatory that basically said that she had to call legal counsel for the LDS church to try to help her find more competent representation. And Lori apparently called. And then when she did, she had a whole lot of things to say to McConkie, which was the actual attorney. It's interesting as we continue because we're going to see like the slow unraveling of Mark Means in this case. Yes. And we'll get to that in a minute. Don't you know we will? And the state also talks about how from what they're aware of and what they do know about the statements that were made, there's no exculpatory statements. As a reminder, exculpatory statements or evidence is evidence that would excuse, justify, or absolve the alleged guilt or fault of the defendant. And this could include a statement. If there were Brady violations in a case, a conviction could be vacated or the prosecutor could face consequences. And a Brady violation is basically where the prosecutor does not supply that exculpatory evidence to the defense. So and that's kind of like one of the things that Mark Means had argued was happening here. The state just kind of like cut it off at the pass on the Chad side as well, just so it was in the record that like there is no exculpatory evidence here. Additionally, there was a subpoena for Nicole Cleveland. In Means' filings, he refers to Laurie's mental health provider only as NC. And so because we've never heard of Nicole Cleveland, I think it's pretty safe to assume that she is her mental health provider. That hearing did occur, but it was sealed. Pryor had also asked for more time to file 12B motions because he had just finished reviewing the grand jury transcript. In Chad's case, which I think this is very interesting, the trial has been set. And when I first read the dates, I was like, I'm sorry, what? Because it's January 9th, but it's January 9th of 2023. Right. So we've got a whole year. Just a touch over, yeah, a year. When this is released, it will be less than a year, but it's scheduled from January 9th, 2023 to March 17th of 2023. That's a long time. It's going to be a long trial. Yes, it is. We're going to move on to the filings. Some of the filings don't seem sexy and they don't seem very interesting, but it's all of this tedious nonsense that really builds strong cases against people who do horrific things. And if this is all done wrong, then the case gets thrown out. So to me, I'm like, oh, a set of flutter by all of this. But I try to take out as much as possible so that Amanda's eyes don't glass over at me like, stop nerding out about this. (laughs) She gets very excited when she gets to read about court docs. (laughs) I did. And I'm like, I'd say half of the other people. Just get to the trial. I want to know more information. I want to know what's happening, all these little tedious things. But then when I go to look at it and I'm like, oh, nothing really moved along. Internally, I get a little sad, but I know it's all necessary because these assholes need to have their day in court. 
It's all part of a very slow descent into justice, as far as I'm concerned. Right. And it's like, yeah, this slowly release of information, which is how it should be, right? We're going to talk about a hearing in a second that while one could say it was the most unsexy hearing ever, we found out a lot. Like we found out way more than anybody intended for us to be able to like read between the lines. And I was excited about that being like, oh, so someone's fucking doing this right because we all know too much, right? Like we know a lot about this case. It is true. There's a reason why we have like a timeline on our website, a list of like all of the people in it. And there's there's websites and there's how many podcasts covering it because there's just so much information. And I feel like that's what sets this apart from a lot of other cases is that it's existing in a world where there's true crime podcasts and Dateline and 2020 and all the things. But anywho, okay, we're going to move into Laurie's case. I am going to discuss the filings. They're going to be a little bit out of order just to make it make more sense so we can like wrap things up and continue to move on. So Mark Means filed a motion for contempt against Melanie Gibb for not complying with his subpoena. We talked about this woof, many moons ago, <laughs> but it was like this three page list of ridiculous things for her to provide, like every piece of technology she's own. Give me everything you've ever thought. Yeah, like all of her like logins for social media, which just like, and we'll explain to you what this means at some point. But sometimes the Illuminati just wants your Facebook login so that they can <laughs> send a uh, mustard seed, a necklace and some other things from Germany and Nigeria. Anywho, Mark Means also filed a motion for a subpoena for documents as well as a criminal deposition. And this was for Melanie Gibbs specifically. And he wanted the deposition to be paid for by the prosecution. Just interesting. The state responded to this as well as Mark's basically, again, as I described it before, his legal hissy fit about Laurie speaking to a third party. And so the state responded to all this at once. And they said that Mark Means filing doesn't articulate a reason that the disclosures that Laurie had made would be a Brady violation, which, I mean, we thoroughly agree, right? And then he says, quote, Means can obtain the statements he's referring to by simply asking his client the statements she made. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh it's beautiful and then quote the public manner in which mr means requests this outline material is concerning as it appears he intends to publicize the statements he believes were made by his client and underline that and tuck that away right because we're going to talk about it in a few so the state also notes that it's worrisome that he objects to the sealing of the matter if Lori had made incriminating statements Right. Like that's not in the best interest of his client. The state also points out that Lori's court appointed death sentence qualified public defender, Jim Archibald, did not join in Means motion. Interesting. And the state argues that neither the motion to disqualify Lori's mental health professional nor the criminal de depositions and out of state subpoenas are supported by law or fact. And then, woof, lastly, the state argues that Means should be precluded from filing any other documents without Archibald co-counsel's signature because his continued involvement in the case lays the groundwork for an appeal and that appeal would be for insufficient counsel. And I would say one of the most frustrating parts of this case so far was when Laurie was not deemed mentally competent to proceed. And I feel like the internet was abuzz with outrage with that as well. But like we all took a deep breath and went, whatever it takes to put them away. So if it takes entertaining this, to a reasonable extent, sure. Every step of the way, it has been abundantly clear that this court has tried to make an appeal-free case. I'm sure every court does have that intention. When you're looking at it, you're like, they're not fucking around, right? One of the last subpoenas that we're going to talk about this time is that there's a subpoena for documents from the Church of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and their stake president, William John Dolling. We're going to call him the LDS Church going forward because that was a mouthful. But they're requesting files, communication and notes relating to the withdrawal of membership and excommunication of Chad Daybell, as well as meetings of the council relating to the consideration of evidence of apostasy. And then all communications of Chad regarding this and his alleged apostasy. Yeah. And I just want to say, too, I visited Idaho while the kids were missing. And I did a couple interviews with people that attended his family's church. And from some of the stories I said very early on. Some of his family members were making it very known that the things that he was doing was against the church and they had and did not want any part of it. 
I find it interesting that now we're looking into this part of it to go, okay, from their point of view, what was Chad doing? What got him excommunicated? And basically, like, what's on their files there? What's going on? Not a story from someone, but like, what do they actually have? Well, and when you look at that and you go, what does that have to do with murdered children? Part of the original indictment against Laurie and Chad was the conspiracy charges to commit first degree murder. And the way that it's laid out from my reading of it is that they created this belief system to justify what they were going to do. And what they might have is proof of that belief system. Exactly. And so having evidence of that outside of like his weird books is pretty important. And especially if there's people who are clergy members going, what are you doing? This isn't what we believe. Right. You're shifting in a very serious way from our belief structure. And whether or not you agree with the LDS Church's belief structure, I'm pretty sure that we probably wouldn't still be existing if killing children was part of it. Right. So a delineation where they like truly shift, I feel like is important to this. Yeah. And it's important for people to recognize that, too, because I have seen a lot of people putting others down for their beliefs because of what Chad and Lori did. And that's really not fair either. So moving back into the filings, Floyd L. Swanton, the deputy attorney general for Idaho, appeared only to ask the court to modify the subpoena in relation to the mental health facility that Means had filed. And he also he filed a motion to seal the department's brief in support of a motion to quash, which is basically to just throw it out, that subpoena for documents. And the reason why he wanted to seal it is because, understandably so, they're going to be including information about Lori's mental health, her medical records, and the restorative treatment she has been and will be receiving. And it's not surprisingly that motion was granted. Additionally, the LDS Church's attorney moved to have their subpoena quashed, and they had a few different arguments. The first was that the documents that were requested relating to Chad being kicked out of the church are not relevant. Mm, Yeah. I don't know about that, my friend. But they said that regardless, they will allow an in-camera review of the items if ordered by the court. They also argue that their disciplinary files are privileged, that their communications with their counsel are protected by attorney-client privilege. There hasn't been an order on this yet. Now, Amanda. Yes. Are you ready to talk about, I'm going to call it the unraveling of Mark Means. I said it before and I like it. I'm feeling that. I would switch Mark Means with your pet name for him, Marky Mark. Thank you. Marky Mark. Marky Mark. Yeah. So Amanda, I'm going to say this again, but I'm going to leave this then. Are you ready to talk about the unraveling of Marky Mark? I am. Okay. (laughs) Just backing up for a moment. We get all of the filings that we review directly from the Idaho Judiciary's website. They have cases that are well known and on that page have every filing that's not sealed. And so when we talk about filings, I have gone through every single filing in these cases. There is a sealed motion where the state moved to disqualify Mark Means based on filings referencing that. I think it was filed in July, but it's not available on there because it's sealed. Right. So from new filings, we learned that on October 8th of 2021, the court interviewed Chad with his attorney, John Pryor, present to determine whether Means' representation of Chad rose to the level of conflict of interest. And, you know, moving back all the way, in the beginning, when Chad was arrested, when they found the remains of J.J. and Tylee, Means represented both Lori and Chad. Right. And a lot of people mentioned that's problematic at the beginning. Yeah. They're like, uh, strange. And so when we're talking about a conflict, we mean, is there an ethical conflict when we're talking about means representing Laurie? Because Laurie's interests, if not now, in the future, might be adverse to Chad's. Right. If the attorney has information that they shouldn't otherwise have, it's not really fair. And because, I mean, say Chad looked at his attorney whom he had privilege with, and said, I convinced her to kill her kids. Him knowing that, he could tell Laurie that, and then she could flip. Or him just knowing that information means that he would guide his client in a different direction. Not to say that he did or didn't say that, but it's just an example of a thing that could have happened. Yeah. And so in Mean's response to this filing, it's very interesting, and there's only a portion of it that is available But he says that basically that Rob Wood has a personal vendetta against him. And (laughs) the filing references a motion for contempt, but I don't see that available in the publicly available filings. In Means' response, he includes a transcript of a conversation that we've heard of so many times, but haven't actually seen to my knowledge. 
And that's the conversation between Rob Wood and Summer Shiflet, as well as her attorney. And it's part of the not sexy filings. But many moons ago, they moved to have Rob Wood disqualified because they argued that he had basically acted unprofessionally. And we'll get into it more. Yeah. And just as a quick reminder, Summer Shiflet is Lori Vallow's sister. Yes. So the notable parts of the conversation that I saw, because this filing was over 70 pages, and it was very detailed and very intense, but there are some broad strokes as well as some very key parts. So over and over, Rob Wood talks about how he thinks that Laurie had been manipulated by Chad. And it's interesting how many times he says that. And I mean, he's pretty clear, like, he's like, we're not going to pull any punches is the phrase he uses numerous times. Like, even if that's the case, we're not going to pull punches. But I do think that he convinced her to do this. Rob Wood said, and this is a quote, I think Colby, the way he said it to me, I think it's kind of like the person who's in the jail cell. It's not my mom. It's someone else, which is just heartbreaking. Like we don't hear from Colby a ton anymore. But like, I just feel like generally and Rob Wood talks about in this, but like this person lost his siblings. He lost his parents. He's lost so much of his family through this. Right. And so in referring to Chad, Rob Wood says, I'm not going to say he's highly intelligent, but you don't have to be highly intelligent to be highly manipulative. I laughed when I read that. Oh, I mean, like I cackled and I was like, when you're right, you're right, my guy. So in reference to Mark Means, Rob Wood mentions that Means has never done a felony case and, quote, he's never done any meaningful criminal work at all and he doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, fair, though. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not a personal vendetta, my guy. It's just the facts. Also, from all of the people following the case, it's pretty clear how unprofessional Mark Means has acted in several pieces of this case. Over and over and over again. It's the way that he holds himself in the courtroom. It's the odd things that he says and accuses people of. And then also his rants on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And there was a quick hearing on the 5th where I was dying reading some of the comments about Mark Means as they were talking about him because they were so true. I wonder if he's watching right now. I wonder if he's waiting to hit the enter button to send his tweet. It was just hilarious. Mm -hmm, I'm sure. So Means' filing also included a report of a forensic analysis of the interview between Wood and Laurie's sister, Summer Shiflet. And the report was done by Dr. James Davidson. And so what he concluded was that Wood asserted improper influence over Summer Shiflet, that it didn't seem so much like an interview as it did a meet and greet, which, yeah, reading it, I agree. Like, he's not asking her questions. He's just like, just so you know, like... It's very much a vibe check more than anything else. He also says that there are numerous efforts to shape the witness's narrative. So I kind of agree. Like over and over and over, he's like, I've heard how great of a mother Lori was. Everybody said that. Talks about how she was a good woman, but for Chad Daybell. And it's a little weird. The way that he came across... Yeah, it was very, very odd. And it wasn't what I expected because he gives an entirely different vibe than Mark Means, right? Like when you look at some of these hearings and you read some of the things that... Yes, I expected better from him. Yes, yes, I did. And then after reading it, I was like, oh, why would he say that? That's her sister. Yeah, I was like, oh, I kind of get why you're fussing now. Yeah. Like, I truly, I, I get it now. I was disappointed. I was. I'm, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Yeah. So the court ordered the disqualification of Mark Means to represent Laurie. He ruled that there was conflict. And the court called into question Means' ability to uphold his duty to his client. And he said there's either been possible or unintentional waivers of Vallow's attorney-client privilege while she has not been deemed competent to proceed and especially in relation to his filing regarding the Brady violations from when she talked to McConkie, he's recounting conversations with Laurie in that filing. And if she isn't competent to proceed, then he probably shouldn't be quoting her because she's not able to make that decision. It just it's a little bit murky because at this point, she hasn't decided who her counsel is going to be going forward. Is it going to be Mark Means, guy who's never tried a felony and per the Lifetime movie, is her son reincarnated? Or will it be Jim Archibald, who is her court-appointed death sentence qualified public defender, right? Like she hasn't made the decision. And if she can't make that decision, she can't really make decisions about what she's comfortable him with him putting in there. So I thought that that was a really important note to make, that it's not just about the conflict. It's also about how he has behaved throughout this case. 
because it's not just about the conflict. It's about the fact that over and over and over, he's lacked the professionalism required for a defendant charged with crimes to this magnitude. Right. Agreed. I'm more surprised that it took this long for him to exit. I think that the filing where he talked about what she said was the last straw. Yeah, that's true. So the final line of this part of the island is Marky Mark is capital O-U-T out. So the last part of procedural blah, blah, we're going to talk about is this hearing from January 5th that Amanda referenced before. Basically, what this hearing was is it was a hearing to extend or modify a protective order that was placed many months ago. What the protective order was doing was it was prohibiting anybody with access to the discovery in this case from sharing anything found through discovery to anyone who doesn't have access to said discovery. So you can't tweet about it. (laughs) You can't share it with the media. You can't write an anonymous letter. You can't do anything. Seems fair. Keep your mouth shut. Say nothing if you're a part of this case. If you have or have had access to it, zip it. And so the reason why the state moved to extend or modify this order was because they specifically wanted the court to say either one, (laughs) this protective order that existed still applies to Mark Means, even though he is no longer a part of this case. Or if it doesn't say that, we would like you to modify it to say that. So that it's explicitly clear. And just as a note, the court even says, like, it seems like you're asking for a gag order. And the the prosecution, in a very long-winded way, says, we're not looking for a gag order, meaning we're not looking for to completely keep him from talking about this case. We're looking for him to not be able to share what is found in Discovery because there is so much that hasn't been shared yet. And when you were watching, Amanda, did you go, because we know so much. It just more piqued my interest, like, what else is there? I know that there's, what, Tammy's autopsy. We know that that's done. We know that that's in their hands, right? That's true. Like, there are things that they have that we know about, halfway know about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. What I thought was really interesting about the hearing, though, is that Lori was listening in. Yes. And I was like, wait, but she's not competent. So like, how, why is she there? What's the purpose? Also, we got a first look at Archibald. We did get a first look at Archibald. Interestingly, though, so in being super compliant with this protective order, right? If you have access to the discovery, you can look at the discovery. If you don't, then you don't, right? Right. And generally, in the course of criminal proceedings, Defense and defendants have access to the discovery just as a mechanism, right? Yeah. But here we have this third party in the mix, right? And that's the mental health facility where Lori is living while she gets treatment to become mentally competent to stand trial, which means per Archibald, that Lori cannot at this point and has not read or seen or heard the grand jury transcript indicting her for murder. Crazy. I mean, you know, her and Mark had some talk. Look, man, who could say what Marky Mark has done? But like Archibald was like, she hasn't seen this. Yeah. Because in order for her to get it, he would have to give it to her in person and then she would have to turn it over. I don't know what you can and can't keep in your personal room. Yeah. But I would imagine like a a folder full of like paper clips and like hard metal things you can't keep. Right. That feels pretty reasonable. Yeah. So he's like, we're entering this third party. And because of that third party, I haven't been able to share this with her. And so the court's like, you can share it with her. Archibald also completely objects to this extension and or clarification. And I don't know, dare I say it, it was sweet. He was like, but Marky Mark's, I mean, he's not calling him Marky Mark. That's me ad living. (laughs) But he's like, Marky Mark was not included in the filings. He was not served a copy and he's not present today. So I do not think it's fair for the court to talk about what he can and cannot do if he's not present. He's like, as attorneys, we have a duty of loyalty and to maintain privilege to our clients. And that's just part of being a lawyer. Yeah. And we owe this duty of confidentiality to past and present clients. And he knows that. I mean, in Archibald, to me, he kind of came out swinging. He was like, there is a lot out there about this case. And he's like, and do you know who's given most of it? Law enforcement, which is effectively the state. So I take offense to the fact that everyone keeps acting like it's the defense that's loose-lipped here when it's not. And me, nerd that I am, was like, oh, like, yeah, it's true. (laughs) Right. Like it is like for them. I mean, with the exception of some some things that we have gotten in means filings where he included more than we've ever seen. Yeah. Reviewing it. I appreciate it. But it's also like 
it wasn't shared, my guy. Don't share it. But so the court basically states that, like, this protective order that was filed applies to current and prior counsel. Done and done. And so this, I want to think, is the last we're going to hear of or about Marky Mark. (laughs) Have you been looking on his Twitter? Because I have. He's been semi-silent. He hasn't really posted about the case which I, I find refreshing that he's finally cooled it a little. I'm not surprised that he's gone. I'm actually a little excited that now all the big kids get to do the paperwork the proper way. Yeah, I mean, when everything is done correctly, it should be so boring. Like, it should be just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Until the trial. Until the trial. Yeah. And honestly, if I was Mark Means right now, I would be embarrassed. I think we've called all of this before, though. We said this months ago. We've all called all of it. But it's different when the court is like, enough. A fucking enough. You have a sibling, right? And you guys are like batting at each other and you're batting at each other. And like nobody's saying anything. And then your mom turns around and goes, knock it off. You're like, oh shit, right? And then like one of you gets grounded. It's like that, but worse. Obviously, Judge Boyce's daddy. How many people call him it in the comments? Yeah. Have you? I hadn't seen it. So some of the comments surrounding the judges and like the cattiness. My favorite was Lori live from her portal. How dare you? She doesn't have a closet. Her portal was in her closet. I'm sure she has. she's opened a new portal because how else would her and Chad be hanging out? And how would they have their portal talks? So in 2019, there's some text between Alex, Lori, and Zulema. And as a reminder, Zulema is a friend of Chad and Lori's. And then also for a brief time, she did get married to Lori's brother, Alex. So they referred to Tylee as a dark portal on September 2nd of 2019. This poor girl, I just, I can't imagine, obviously her mother, right, saying bad things or thinking bad things about her daughter. But then even outsiders that weren't really like in the family being like, yep, that's a dark one. Like, what the hell? It's a teenager. One also like this 17 year old girl who is best friends with her mom, looks up to her mom. And has this beautiful relationship with her little brother and takes care of him. And and people call him her protector. And she's this like ray of light. Like she seems like she's just like, you don't often think of kids as good or bad people. And I'm not saying that like kids can be good or bad, right? Like I think that like to a certain extent, you're just a kid trying to figure it the fuck out. But like from everything I read and everything I see about her, like the world was a better place for having her in it. And for anyone to see her this way, let alone her mother, but also like, yeah, like you're saying like strangers, like how the fuck do you know? I'm dropping a lot of F-bombs because I have a lot of feelings today. No, it's infuriating. Like because all these people played into the nonsense, that's why this girl is dead. Exactly. Right? Like because everyone was like, yep, you're right. Yep, you're right. Had they been like, you seem a little off. This sounds fucking bananas. Perhaps it wouldn't have happened. I don't know if they could have stopped it, but I feel like they could have at least stood in the way. Alex asks Zulema if she can call a tornado for a single person. Do you know about any single person tornadoes? Have you heard of a single person tornado? I've heard of a sharknado. Maybe it's in the same uh, ballpark. It's just, again, it baffles me that these people believed that they could call storms and that they can pray zombies to death. But they clearly didn't believe that because they didn't. Well, they say that the numbers went down after they prayed, but not the people they really wanted to go away. Just the other random zombies throughout the world. Loons. Anyways, so Zulema says to Alex, quote, I think you guys will be led to deal with the dark one when it's time. Fucker. Creepy. And also all that I had going through my head when I was reading all the stuff about Zulema is I feel like she comes across as so innocent and oh no, her husband died and she wouldn't dare be part of something this bad. But then like there's proof that she was fully in it. Here's my thing. And I just mean this with every fiber of my being. Dearest Zulema Pestanas, fuck you. Fuck you. Two children are dead. Because of you. Not fully, but yes, you helped. She's complicit. Like, she's complicit and she did not save those babies. Right. And she could have. She could have. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, not saving them when you know what is going to happen if you don't. When you call someone dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and what also is surprising to me is she's also a mother. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what if Chad would have deemed her son dark? Interesting. All around. So at one point, Alex sends Zulema a picture of a rifle and says he was at the range. And between September 8th and September 17th, the only child mentioned is JJ. 
no children are mentioned after September 17th. It hurts my heart still thinking about it. Like I know what happened and it still hurts my heart to say like they're just gone. Yeah. And as a reminder, the last time Tylee is seen is on September 8th. Yeah. On September 21st, Lori tells Dilemma to tell people she is with her brother in Queen Creek if they ask about her. And then, quote unquote, especially those who seek my destruction. Fuck off, you lunatic. Zulema then asks who's seeking her destruction, and Lori specifies Serena, Christina, and her family. Interesting. Zulema tells Lori that she thinks that it's best to stay hidden and that she is, quote, staying quiet as if nothing is happening. This plays into what you just said. Anger gaze intensifies. So there was a review of Alex and Zulema's phones, and this was from December of 2019. So Alex's phone was activated on December 3rd of 2019. And interestingly, it was registered to Chad Daybell. Weird. The next day, Zulema tells Alex that someone named Raphael got a new cell phone number. Raphael. Mm-hmm. You know what I think of. Hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay, I was hoping that you were going to say that. That's the only Raphael I know. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I'm thinking of. So from reviewing the text and the review of the P.O. Box application, they determined that Raphael was Chad Daybell. Hey, he had a better name than Chad Duvall. I can't. I just can't. Alex also had a number for someone named Guy. This is also Chad. Yeah, because his middle name is fucking Guy. His middle name is Guy. So fucking criminal masterminds. Lindsay and I love to call him a criminal mastermind because every time <laughs> he, he gets a new name, he's just making it up with his actual name. I feel like somebody else had to do Raphael. Zulema probably. <laughs> Like he's, as one might say, he's not very intelligent. (laughs) I'm just waiting for him to just put like a Y at the end of his name or something. Or it's like an at instead of an A. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. So then on December 5th of 2019, Alex says to Chad as Guy, hey, it's Ray Romano, but Ray is spelled R-E-H. Why are they dragging him into this? Who picks Ray Romano? Who could know? Why him of all people? Yeah. Starting on December 6th, Chad and Alex text about someone named Lily. And this was code for Lori. <gasps> Shock! I'm so sorry. Yeah. They, they're just changing little things. I mean, it's it sounds pretty much the same. They're... Yeah. They're not getting it. Yeah. Criminal masterminds. Yeah, they're just... They're not good at this. <laughs> so the investigator determined that it seemed as though Lori was texting Alex through Chad's phone. And then on December 9th of 2019, at around 3.30 p.m., Alex asked Zilema if, quote, she ordered the storms that were occurring. And she said that she, quote, ordered the storms when they were having a barbecue. I imagine that she, like, ordered a burger from the grill and then, like, storms on the side. Yeah, that's how you order a storm, right? It's a side dish. It is. So between December 10th and December 11th, Alex and Chad text back and forth about Alex's condition that will eventually lead to his death, which don't like it. Very, very strange, right? This is also when he asks Chad to give him a blessing because he was having a bad attack and he couldn't breathe. Still, I I think I've said this many, many times. I don't buy that he just died. Oh, I agree. I don't buy it. Even though the autopsy says things, I don't buy it still. Well, and then also, just as a note, he died on the 12th. So like, we're right up in there. Yeah. So Alex says, I feel like the poison from the spear in the heart has done some residual damage. As a spear to the heart would. Yeah. So then on December 11th, Melanie, and it's Melanie who is Lori's niece, And Alex exchanged texts about her computer that was confiscated by the police. Alex tells her that she should just go get a new computer because they're not going to give it back. When you're right, you're right. And they're just holding it for leverage until you help them. So just write it off. All of it. Just all of it. On December 11th of 2019, one day before Alex dies, Chad tells Alex that he paid the bills on the Rexburg house, at which point Alex said, He was just going to let it go with all of his stuff. And you know what that sounds like to me? I'm not coming back to Idaho. I'm not coming back. I'd rather get all of my stuff gone than be in the same state as you and Laurie. That and also it makes it sound like he knew he was going to die. Like, I'm just going to let it go. I'm not worried about it. I don't need it anymore. I mean, he'd also been moving around following Laurie for how long? Pretty much his whole life until he got married for a couple weeks. 
So the last communication from Alex was a call to Chad on the Raphael number. Not a good last person to talk to. No. Okay, so moving away from text, we're going to talk about Gilbert Police's interview with Colby when he was gifted a car from Laurie. And so on December 21st of 2019, Colby contacted investigators because he was worried about his siblings. Because at this point, they had not yet found them. So Colby told law enforcement that he had been gifted a blue Nissan Rogue that had been in both Laurie and Alex's names. He said that Alex had brought the car to him from Mesa, Arizona. And at that point, Laurie had stopped talking to Colby. It was possible that evidence for Tylee or JJ's whereabouts or the nature of their dis- disappearance could be in the car. Could you imagine getting that car and being like, oh, you got me. You gave me a car. That's so kind. And then it dawning on you that whatever you did to my siblings, there could be evidence of that here. Investigators seized the car for evidence processing, but Colby was allowed to take like his stuff out of it. And he also, I believe he had a young baby at that point, right? So they had been using it for their child. So they were able to take all that out. Several items were collected from the car, including trace samples from vehicle seat bottoms, backs, and floorboards. The rear passenger seat was a bench seat. And there was three distinct stains, all of which, after being tested, were found to be blood. There was also blood on the seatbelt anchor, which is where you clip it in. And so Colby's last communication with Laurie as of that interview was an email from November 28th of 2019. Colby had reached out and said, Mom, you changed your number. What's going on? Laurie replied, Hi, Colbs. I need you to know that we are safe and happy. I know this sounds confusing to you, but I need you to trust me that although there are wicked people trying to cause harm, that Jesus is on our side and taking care of us. Although we may be out of touch, I will continue to help you. I love you all so much. The car and the car insurance will be paid for you so you can drive with no worries. The phones will also be good. You are precious to your mama. I love you so much. Kisses to blank and you and Kelsey. I hope to talk soon. I will continue to pray blessings on your family constantly. Bizarre. It's just so frustrating. Yeah. The amount of lies that this woman did to get her way, right? And in in the meantime, it was just destroying family after family after family. Exactly. Exactly. Another item that came up recently was the search of Alex's Ford F-150 pickup truck. And what was found during the search? So there was registration showing the truck was registered to Alex, a patriarch letter from Chad to Alex, a bag of earplugs, probably, I'd guess, the shooting range, and maybe another shooting, and snap caps for Remington training bullets. It was only a snapshot of the report that was posted, though, so we didn't get to see all of it. But something that I thought was interesting is uh, Justin Lum, a reporter in Arizona, also noted that, quote, further research into the Gilbert Police Department report shows that investigators found evidence of a small stain on the front passenger seat testing positive to be blood. So not only was blood found in Colby's car, it was also found in this truck. Just quick question a minute. Do you have blood in any of your vehicles? I don't believe so. No. Do you? Not that I'm aware of. So it's not a common thing to have blood in your backseat. No. Like, and I could think of it too from Colby's point of view, right? Like he had a young child at that time. Young children do silly things. Mine stabbed himself in the hand with a pencil yesterday and bled a little bit. It happens. Things happen. But blood in Alex's car when there are no small children or odd happenings. It's just, it's weird. Also, anything having to do with Laurie and Alex, I'm like, what are you doing? So it's just different. It is. So on the piece that we can see, though, of this report, it does mention that a crime technician photographed and attempted to collect biological evidence. So I believe that's what the reporter was talking about. So on a completely different note, the Gilbert Police Department Incident and Investigation Report, it doesn't have a date on it, but the information on it is from September 30th of 2020. And it states that Brandon Boudreaux's phone had blocked communications from Charles Vallow. And he said that the only other person that had access to his phone was who was now his ex-wife, Melanie, and his son, who would sometimes play games on it. He discovered 24 unread texts from January to July of 2019 from Charles. They were found under a folder titled something like AT&T blocked folders. And then all of Charles' calls would go to voicemail. 
I didn't even know phones, you could do that. I know you could silence people like, oh, when I get this, I don't know, notification from Target, (laughs) I can silence that. But like, can I route just one number to a magic folder? That takes a little doing, right? I have never seen a situation where you can block and read. Yeah, right. So it's interesting that his phone was doing this. And then the only person, I mean, unless his son accidentally did it while playing a game, which I highly, highly doubt, was Melanie. Yeah, it sounds a little too sophisticated for that. But remember, Melanie says she had no part in any of this. She didn't know what was happening ever. Yep. So another thing that came out in November was another Dateline episode. And this one had a couple little takeaways. I was not as impressed with this one as I had been with others because there just wasn't a lot of new information for them to review. But there was a couple little things here and there. So one thing that I noticed is... Charles's brothers, Jerry and Bobby, talked a little bit, and I hadn't really seen them before. I'd heard their names in the past, but I hadn't heard from them. So it was interesting to see them. They discussed Charles's marriage to Lori, and they knew about Lori's ideas of being supernatural and visiting other planets. Fucking bizarre. They had been worried about their brother after learning about Lori's new beliefs, rightly so. And it hurts my heart for them, too, because they're just watching all of this unfold in their family. And, you know, like he married this person. His family was fine, got married to this person. And then slowly she like descended into a supernatural alien. What is this? Well, she's visiting other planets. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's just sad. This poor family. So this is where I was like, I feel like they're grasping at straws. But they also interviewed former NFL quarterback Scott Mitchell. Fucking weird. And when they introduced him, I was like, oh, wow. Cool, bro. Why are you here? (laughs) Well, I guess he grew up with Chad. And I loved that he was like, they're going to like pull out his like fourth grade teacher. Yeah. But he says that he was very average. And one thing that I was like, yep, I get it. He found a way to make himself something. Yeah, I hate it. And so I was like, I mean, this is like a really weird interview, like super weird. And then, oh, and and now it's like kind of dark, too. Yeah. I I just laughed at it. It was like former NFL quarterback. And I'm like, what do you have to do with anything? So they also compared the police interviews from when Charles died. And I feel like you and I did that kind of last time we did an update. Yeah. But they kind of kept playing little by little, like side by side in a way. And we're just finding little pieces of the stories that did not match. They also went over the timeline of events that day, which we've already reviewed. The only other little thing that I took away is, and I don't even know, I was trying to listen and I couldn't really hear it that well, but they brought up that while Tylee was being interviewed, like when she was in the interview room for a while, she was humming the Moana song. And again, I tried to listen. I didn't pick up on it as much. I didn't either. And they were saying it was like the popular song where she says, I wish I could be the perfect daughter. But I'm like, that was a very popular movie at that time, too. And all of us had those songs stuck in our head. Yeah. So I don't know if they were just trying to read into it too much or if perhaps she related with that, which you kind of brought up earlier. She was trying to be the perfect daughter to her mom. Yeah. And that's also represented, too, a while back, Tylee's Instagram account. A lot of screenshots were taken and publicized. Yeah. And some of the things that she posted agree with that, where she idolized her mother Yeah. Loved her wholeheartedly. And this is what happened. Fuck Laurie. I will tell you, Lindsay, can you guess what my favorite part of this Dateline episode was? Think back the last few months. Was it them talking about portals? Sort of. Was it talking about Laurie's portal? Yes. I hate myself. (laughs) So Keith Morrison read a little bit of Chad's erotica and just watching Keith Morrison say the things... I was like cackling so much about leggings. <laughs> no. And remember, we we poke fun at a little bit of this because it is hard. Horrific. And there have been several times where Lindsay and I watch interviews or look at pictures or, you know, little little details come out about especially JJ for me that just make me crumble. So, yeah, I mean, look, last night when I was reading about the interview between Summer Shufflet and Rob Wood, I was crying because you could feel the hurt. Like, you could feel it. There's no part of this story where there's a happy ending. No, no, no one gets one. There's maybe a little bit of justice, but there's not a happy ending because Larry still doesn't get his boy and Tylee never gets to go to college 
and Colby loses his siblings and the Daybell kids lost their mother. And then they see that their father was somehow involved or their head is under a fucking rock. And as far as they're concerned, they lost their mother and the whole world is roasting their father, right? Like there's there's no winners here. Right, right. And one of the saddest parts of the Dateline episode is their theories on JJ's last moments. And they brought up on September 22nd, that's the last photo of JJ. And he's wearing the red PJs that he was later buried in. I hate it so much. I think the first time I heard about the red pajamas was in the courtroom. Yeah. And I remember that day just like listening and going, oh my gosh, you know, like thinking of this little boy in his little red pajamas. And that that broke me. Yeah. Knowing that that photo is probably the last one taken and that he's wearing those damn pajamas, you know, just it breaks my heart every time. And the same day, Lori texted Alex, do you have eggs? And Alex's response was, do you want me to get eggs and bring them to you? And what was speculated on the Dateline episode is that they talked a lot in code, right? We know that they gave each other stupid code names and a lot of things didn't mean what they were actually saying. And it speculated that eggs meant Valium or Xanax because of eggs being the street name for both those products. I hadn't heard of that, nor do I know the street name of a lot of things, I guess. In my head, I'm like, what did they do, right? Because remember, they used duct tape and trash bags and things like that. And it's like, why would you use all of that if the person was already deceased? But also was a child, right? Like, it's not as though JJ was like a strapping young lad, right? He was a full on like skinny little boy, right? Like he was not physically threatening in any way. It's just appalling. And when we talk about things we don't know, what we don't know is the cause of death of JJ. Right. And whether they were ever able to determine a cause of death for Tylee. And that is also one of the things that is mentioned in the Rob Wood and Summer Shiflet interview is Summer asks, do you know how she died? Yeah. And at that point, Rob was like, we're still waiting to find out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that broke my heart, too. Yeah. Well, and remember the last time that anyone ever mentions JJ was when Melanie Gibb and her boyfriend were visiting and they remember him being carried up to bed asleep is what they say. And then they never saw him again. So just to point that out. Fuck Melanie Gibb, too. I know. I, I can't. Someone tells you to lie about where their kids are. You call police and tell them they told you to do that. Yeah, it was a child. Yeah. And I understand like, oh, being loyal to your friend. But I'm sorry, children come first. Always. Anyways, we'll get back to it. So another person that was interviewed in the Dateline episode was Jeannie, and she was a landlord in Hawaii. So they were basically applying to rent one of her properties. And she Googled Chad and noticed that his wife had just died. Love this for her. Yeah, I love that she was bold enough to send him a text about it. And he told her that he just woke up one morning and realized that she had been dead for hours and that she is happy on the other side. And then she pushed more and she's like, well, what the coroner say? What did the autopsy show? She's one of us. Is she not one of us? Like, right. And then she's like, you already knew Lori? This looks suspicious. Yeah. And then she asked about your new wife. Like, your wife just died. And he stopped responding to her. My thought was, if only the police from Arizona had Jeannie on their team, she would have figured this out. Oh, my God. No fucking around. She would have been. Or Idaho. She would have been like. We're going to find some people. So lastly, the another person I found interesting that was in the Dateline episode was Natalie. And Natalie is Ian Pulowski's ex-wife. And Ian Pulowski is now married to Melanie, who is Lori Vallow's niece. Well, she called Brandon, who is Melanie's ex-husband, to let him know that Melanie admitted to Ian that her and Alex plotted his murder. So remember before she's like, I don't know who would have shot at him. I didn't do it. My uncle wouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. Well, other people are saying you did. And then we're going to talk about it more. But there's a little more information that came up around that, too. Just a little bit, Amanda. Just a little bit. Just a little. Just a touch. So again, if you're new to the Lori Vallow case, it's a lot of information. There is a fabulous reporter named Justin Lum. Love him. And he's out of Arizona. And he made a video blog of the case up until December and published that. And there's a few little takeaways that I wanted to just touch on. But he does start from the beginning. So it's, I think it's like 45 minutes long, but interesting to check out. During his video, he actually interviews a couple people and two of them being Kay and Larry Woodcock. So the ones that got this entire search started. 
And they weighed in on Lori's mental status. And I think that they just said what all of us were thinking. And they said that they don't believe that she is mentally struggling and that it is just a legal play. They were also surprised by all of the details that the police in Arizona released before the trial. And we th- we thought that too. I, I know we said earlier, like, we're surprised at how much information we know. I just, I don't understand why we know it. Right. And almost every month we're getting another drop of information. Honestly, I think it's because I think Laurie and Chad are both going to be sentenced to death. And I don't know whether Arizona is ever going to get to have a trial. That's true. And they're like, we want you to know everything that we fucking found. We want you to know what these assholes did. Right. That's their way of getting justice is by letting the world know. And here's the thing, not just what Laurie did, but like Zulema might not be in prison, but hell if the world doesn't hate her. Yep. And then obviously Alex Cox died. Mm -hmm. But now we're finding out little things that he was doing while in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Also, Melanie Gibb. So a lot of people. And, And just to, again, recap, all of the charges that we're talking about earlier that Lindsay's been talking about, the filings, all of those are in Idaho. And the ones from Arizona can't have anything happen to them until Idaho's done. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. Two different states. Multiple states, if you include Hawaii. Kay and Larry also said, basically, they think everything was done purely for money, not necessarily for their beliefs. And they thought that their beliefs were just a method or vehicle to get them to their goal, which was money and their weird relationship. Not even that much fucking money. Well, they thought there'd be more money. What, a million dollars? Like, don't get me wrong. A million dollars is a lot of money. But like, a million dollars isn't the type of money that you could live off for the rest of your life if you were living a lavish lifestyle. Right. And that's kind of what Lori was used to. It's like a good lifestyle. Yeah. So Nate Eaton from East Idaho News was also interviewed. And I thought it was just funny because these two reporters, one from Arizona, one from Idaho, have been like, the two getting a lot of information out and now they're like interviewing each other. I think that's kind of cute. I know. I love that they have like this little friendship now. Yes, as they should. I don't know why. I'm just like rooting for them to be BFFs forever. But like I want like uh, like a buddy film about them. <laughs> them going on like vacation together. Yes. <laughs> well, Nate Eaton gave his thoughts about Melanie Gibbs' role in the case And he believes that she might become a bit diminished because now there's so much information coming directly from Chad and Lori. And so we're not only relying on what she saw anymore, which I'm like, fair, because he is the one that interviewed her way back then when the I want to say the kids were still. Yeah, when the kids were still missing and her interview the entire time. I remember when I watched it, I was just so angry at Melanie Gibb off topic, but people have made little videos of pictures of her with her mouth moving with stupid music. And I hate her so much that it makes me smile. Yeah. But just the role that she played in this, I can't wait for charges to come for her because like you said, like everyone that just let this happen, they need to be held accountable for it. Yeah. Well, and also, again, when we talk about the conspiracy, we're talking about this religion and this belief system being built up, perpetuated and discussed and honestly, like promoted by a group of people. That wasn't just Chad and Laurie. No, there's a whole group. And so as far as I'm concerned, other people are accountable for what happened as a result of that belief structure. Right. And yeah, like there's two Melanie. So this is Melanie Gibb. This is their friend. And then also Melanie Pulowski. She lived next door to Lori. You can't tell me that she had no idea what was happening. Yeah, no, there's no way. Nate also gave some of his thoughts on Zulema being naive, but knowing a lot more in that police interview. Yeah. And I think that's what we said when we were like, she knows so much and she is part of this. Yeah. And he speculates that perhaps she's cooperating due to maybe an agreement that we may not know about. Well, we are we know, we know that she has a limited use immunity agreement, right? We know that already. Right. We know that there's something, but we don't know what specifics. I mean, I I'm under the opinion that she is getting out of aiding and abetting charges by being cooperative. But who could say? I hope I hope something comes. I hope they, they can find something for her. Yeah. They also discussed the storage unit. And remember back when the kids were missing, all of us were all glued to these news sources looking at stills from a storage facility. And Nate kind of explained that a little bit more and said that the owner of the storage facility logged every single time that someone visited their storage unit and gave all of this information to East Idaho News. Love this. 
And this footage, it played a key role later on because this footage helped show what they were storing, which ended up being a seat and a Jeep tire. It also shows that Chad and Lori had some sort of relationship before Tammy was murdered. So it's just interesting that the owner of a random storage place played such a big role in solving a couple things, right? And we're going to get to it next time, actually. But this Jeep, there's a lot of information that came through about this Jeep recently. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So something that we've brought up before is a vow. And a vow is a group of people called Another Voice of Warning. We've heard from the owner of a vow before. His name's Christopher Perrette or Parrot. I've heard it said two different ways. But we haven't actually heard from them in a while. And Justin interviewed a former member, and they just call her Amy. They didn't use her real name. And a vow's a lot bigger than I thought it was. She was saying that it's estimated between about 10,000 to 20,000 people that had joined. The reasons why they were joining were things like prepping for the forums to share and read other people's visions. So because of this, Chad was kind of a big deal on it. He was popular. And she called him like a celebrity on the Avow site. I hate it. So Christopher, the owner of Avow, often promoted Chad and his books. And Chad also, this is something that I guess it's not life-changing information, but I feel like it lets me know that there's more people out there that were behind Chad, is he also wrote a monthly column called As I See It. And it was under the Global Research Initiative. And people had to pay an extra $5 a month to read the section of a vow. A $5 Chad tax. I hate it. I hate it so much. What they do is they take like a snippet of it and share it and be like, to read more, you have to pay $5 more a month. So he was like a cash cow for these people. Why? I don't know. So yeah, she was just saying, you know, that he was a big deal. Christopher Perrette was defending Chad on the site for a while. And I will say that later on, he did come out and he was like, I was wrong. But it's still like, for the longest time, though, all of these people were like behind Chad. But Aval, I don't know, I just got a weird vibe about Aval. And then when I went to Idaho, I interviewed one woman who was like, they're bad news. And some of their meetings, yeah, are weird. And the way that they get people to join are weird. You don't fucking say. Again, that's someone's opinion that lives in Idaho that's perhaps, you know, like met some of these people. But just from the beginning of it, I just got a weird vibe. I feel like some of those people might have been some of Lori and Chad's followers in a sense. Yeah. And ugh, I just I don't like it. Lastly, Justin Lum interviewed crime talk host Scott Reich. And the takeaway that I got from that was a lot of people are saying these cases are together, right? You brought it up at the beginning, Lindsay. And they're like, well, how do they get them separated? Is it possible to separate them? And he gave kind of a quick explanation saying that the judge could sever if there's competing or conflicting defenses. So basically, if one of them accuses the other, right? Or if one of them takes that side. And that's why it was so dangerous then, like you said, that Mark had represented both of them. It's just an interesting thought that everything we're doing right now, it could be separated at the end. And then you're going to have two crazy long trials with a lot of the same information. Honestly, I don't think we're going to have two trials. I think one of them is going to take a plea deal and we're going to have one trial. I cannot fathom <laughs> at least one of them not taking a plea deal. Like I, my brain refuses to take another six years of this shit. Right? Like, I just can't. <laughs> can't do it. And I'm not even directly impacted by this. Like, can you imagine being one of these family members and you're like, <sighs> both of them are guilty. Another year of slow leaks of information, little by little by little. And like, at the very least, Mark Means isn't attached to it anymore. So it's not as <laughs> dramatic. But like, Arizona's like, y'all want more? And just like throwing papers outside. <laughs> Just giving information out. The border of Arizona, just like a printer's there, just like throwing it. Yeah, y'all want more? And there's just a printer that's continually going. Like, I don't understand. Well, <laughs> so sorry. It's just, who do you think will flip on who? What's your opinion? Quick opinion. I hope that Laurie flips on Chad, but I think it's more likely that Chad will flip on Laurie. That's my thought, too. Because he is... A toe with no bones made into a man. And at the end of the day, she is a mother whose children are dead. And he is the man who she married, not the father to those children. 
it's a worse narrative that she, as the mother to those children, has killed her children. I agree. I agree with all of that. Yeah. This has been a lot. And guess what? We've got more. But the other things that we want to discuss shift a little bit from this case to the attempted murder of Brandon Boudreaux and interviews with Melanie and interviews with other parties about her and Brandon's relationships. Generally, our our updating format going forward is on weeks when we release our True Crime Digest update, we're going to have our True Crime Digest cases we're beginning to follow as well as cases we're continuing to follow. And then in a separate episode on released on that same day, we're going to have Valo case updates. And in that next episode that we do, we're going to talk about the attempted murder of Brandon Boudreaux and what we've learned over the past few months about that, because a lot of materials have come out that we've sifted through and... It's honestly just too much to talk about today. Well, since we have, I know we said at the top of the episode, we have a lot of new people that have been listening and following. And we also have our lovely listeners that have been with us to the beginning. So we thank you all so, so much. One thing that we're hoping to grow is our reviews. So if you're loving our episodes, if you're loving our podcast, please take a few minutes and go on Apple iTunes or now Spotify also allows reviews. Yeah, love that. And Facebook also allows reviews. So if you could take a few minutes, go on one of those platforms, leave us a review, it would help us grow. And then also, we would love to send you a thank you in the form of a sticker. Please just take a screenshot, send us an email, a Facebook message, Instagram message, something with the screenshot, and we'd be happy to send you out a sticker as a thank you for taking the time to help us out. Yeah. We appreciate everyone that's already done that too. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope you're enjoying your stickers. We love seeing where you've placed them. Yeah. Tag us if you take pictures of them in that or any of your True Creeps merch. So with that, have a great week, guys. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.